Okay, so last week we covered the great passages people love. Wives, submit to your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. And we talked all about that as we did when we covered Ephesians. And then Paul continues at this point. He says, children, obey your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he has done, for there is no respect of persons. So jump back with me to verse 20. Uh, Paul has talked about the way, the relationships of husbands and wives. And then now he speaks to children. He, he likes to do that. He goes in a chron- chronology. He starts with husbands and wives. He goes to children. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. The word technia, or techna, excuse me, in Greek, it means those who are young. Uh, But here it appears to describe anybody, so we can't say, you know, little babies, little children, toddlers, adolescents, anybody who's under the care and governance of their parents, um, children obey, is what Paul says. Hupa kauno, it sounds like Hawaiian, listen, hear, obey, hearken to them, hear them, do what they say. This is not the word that Paul used for wives. I want you to notice that. He doesn't say wives obey your husbands. He says submit. So that's hupotasso, and that means subject yourself under the rank in a rank, like a colonel will subject himself under the rank of a general. Just put yourself under. Realize that that person is the one who's going to be doing this and doing that. Put yourself under them, and it's a willing decision. In obey, it's, there's, there's less willingness there. It's a direct do this. For the wife, nowhere we mentioned last week does uh, does it say husbands get your wives to submit to you. It only says wives you choose to put yourself under. You're making the choice. But here with obey with children, it's more obey them straight up obey. The different words. Uh, are present, and I think it's important, and there's little ambiguity when it comes to the children. Uh, The command goes all the way back to the Old Testament, and the fifth law uh, written in stone, which is uh, honor thy father and thy mother, ready? That, that, honor your father and mother, that uh, your days may be long upon the land which the Lord God has given you. That's the promise associated with the commandment. And then Leviticus 19.3 says, You shall fear every man his mother and his father, and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. So, for many years, under parents, 
children are um, sort of like all the human races under God. We are all under God uh, as creatures and creations and children of God. Well, the same thing's going on with parents and their children. And for many years, parents will serve the way the Lord serves over the creations on this earth. Parents provide shelter and food. They provide clothing and protection uh, for their children. Uh, hey, guys, come on in. Parents, um, just like God provides for us. And parents provide education and they provide responsibility and they provide guidance uh, to govern their children and to care for their children. That's what God is doing for us. So when he says honor them, it's really an important uh, principle that he's making is that you parents are acting in the place of, of God. So children understand that your parents are serving in the same capacity that I serve for the rest of the human race. In return for caring for them, children are to them respect mom and dad. And they are to honor them. How? By hupotassoing them. That means to hear, not hupotassoing, by uh, hupokuoing them, meaning hear what mom and dad say. Listen to what mom and dad say. And do what mom and dad say out of respect for what mom and dad do for you. That, that's what it, the, the commandment is. Uh, and so the, it flows, flows back to the old thing. God is taking care of us too. His creations should respect him. I mean, he's the one who causes the rain to fall. He's the one who brings the sun to shine. He's the one who has the crops grow. People should be naturally grateful for the providence that God bestows upon us. We aren't, you know, generally uh, as a people, but that's what the commandment flows through. God does this for his children. We, uh, we do this for our children. Children, respect and be grateful to your parents for that. Paul adds here in Colossians, for this is right. That's how he just puts it. Uh, and right can always be changed to righteous in scripture. So you could say, for this is righteous. This is goodness. This is holiness. Uh, children, verse 20, obey your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So when um, a child decides to hear mom and dad, then the Lord's pleased with them. And that's interesting that you can please the Lord as a child and, and, and as a teenager and as a, a toddler. That when you obey and listen to mom and dad, God's happy with that. And... and uh, God says through Moses that there's a blessing tied to it. And Paul in, first, in, in Ephesians chapter 5 says there's a blessing for children being obedient and hearing their parents. Do you know what that blessing is? Your days will be long upon the land. That's what he says. There's a, it's one of the few commandments in the Bible where it gives you a command and there's a blessing associated with it. That if you obey mom and dad, you will live long upon the land. Um, we don't know if that means God will stop protecting you. I mean, in the Old Testament, we have no idea. We don't know if he curses children who aren't. I don't think he does. But, uh, but or we don't know if just by the mere fact that when children are disobedient to their parents, they put themselves in a place 
of Jeopardy. Why can I say that? Because there's few people in a good set of parents who love their children more on earth. No one loves a good set of parents. No one loves their children more. And the parents are going to give them the best advice that they can give them. So when a child doesn't listen to that advice, if the parents are good and the child steps out from that protection, their days may not be long upon the land. Their days may be short. For instance, a mother uh, tells her child, don't go in the street. And the child is seven and says, I'm not listening to you. Look, mom, and runs out into the street. Well, they lose that protective uh, providence over them and your days may not be long upon the land. And so then verse 21, he moves from children. He says, fathers, this is a big one. Provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And in my experience, and I'm just talking from my own observances, I know there's exceptions, but in my experience in males, and therefore in some fathers, uh, fathers, males, poke at, criticize, harass people. (laughs) Males do this with each other. Uh, Anyone who's ever been in a fraternity or if you've ever got onto a job that has a hierarchy of males, uh, like uh, fishing boats, police force, firefighters, and you're new, you're a newbie, you're a greenhorn, you you get hazed, you get picked on, you get criticized and mocked for everything you do. And they ride each other and they test each other and, and they mock them when they fail. And unfortunately, that ethic in males, naturally, some fathers do this to their children. And if it gets carried away and it isn't executed in love and with a purpose, you know, criticism, uh, which means you never do it to harass a child, then it can lead to what Paul calls provocations. And, and when they are relentless enough, these provocations, it turns a child, male and female, to becoming discouraged, broken, uh, totally uh, hollowed out, and sometimes really, really angry. Because the, the male figure has been riding them, riding them, riding them, right? And they can't escape. They, they want to please the male figure. They want to please father. But dad does not give them a break. He's relentless. And Paul is directly warning fathers. He points them out. You know, we've talked about wives. We've talked about husbands. We've talked about children. But he, speci- he doesn't have any, uh, anything for mothers here. He doesn't say mothers love your children. He doesn't have to. But he does have to give some kind of insights to fathers because we naturally can be little jerks if, if we aren't respectful of the spirit of God and, and to be kind. The word uh, discouraged, discouraged, you've lost courage. And he says, if you ride them, they can become without courage. And they just turn to whatever will give them courage, you know, liquid courage or uh, powder courage or something else. You know, so fathers, you have a really important role. This is Father's Day, ironically, which I don't really care about, but uh, except I love my dad. But the uh, 
writing children. He's, he's really, he's, he's worrying about children need encouragement to be uh, encouraged to do well and to, to go out and fight and to go out and uh, do what and get their education and make good choices. Encouraged, but not discouraged. And uh, so, you know, a boy t- or, or a girl tries to hammer a nail and the dad laughs at him. You don't know what you're doing, kid. And so the boy tries again or the girl tries again and the father snatches the hammer away and says, let me do it. And then the boy privately goes and, you know, tries to learn to hammer nails and the father sees him and mocks him again. It's this relentless criticism upon children that uh, can destroy them so, and lead to despondency. And it happens in so many ways from, from fathers usually. So uh, Paul says in Ephesians 5, 4, Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Don't provoke them to being angry. You know, but, and he gives the, the, the way to do it, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And what is that? Well, how does God treat us as adults and as children? How is he working with us? Kindly, gently, long-suffering, not manipulation, not guilt, not shame, not criticism, but in the admonition of the Lord, which is love. Help lift them up in love. Uh, And then he says, verse 22, which is an interesting topic, servants, servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. In Paul's day, this, in all probability, it could have referred to employers and employees, servants, you know, don't just pretend like you're a good employee. Uh, It probably was speaking of masters and slaves. Probably that. It may not because of chapter four, verse one, but we'll talk about that. But it's probably talking about slavery. Why do we say that? Because slavery was ubiquitous in the ancient world. It was everywhere and it was a common thing and it was accepted, right? And he says, listen, um, servants obey all things your, uh, your masters according to the flesh. Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. And servants don't do it with eye service as men pleasers. But if you're a Christian believer and you're a slave and you have a master, you serve your master's wishes with all your heart, right? And you know why he says that? He says, because you are serving God. You're serving God as a slave. You're not serving your master. And he's going to explain that. So don't feign allegiance. Don't feign uh like you're working hard and then when the master turns his back, you know, sit back in the corn. Uh, just do it and work hard honestly to your master. It's interesting that even in our engagements with others, that Paul is saying, be honest and serve the Lord in the things you do, right? And this would make us good witnesses to our employers and to our masters if slavery was in place today, causing them to appreciate hiring Christians, giving a good name to Christians. I hired a Christian and they're good workers. They, they don't mess around. They do their job. 
And, and that can be the opposite case in Christianity. Sometimes Christians are the worst workers because they think, I don't serve anybody but God, and I'm not serving God in this job, so I'm going to be terrible. But Paul is talking about us being the best employers, employees, working, not eye-pleasing, but doing our job. Why? Because he says we're doing it for the Lord. He adds to the, in the next three verses to this idea, he says, Whatsoever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that, the Lord, that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who you serve. You serve Christ in everything you do. And then he says, But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong that he has done. For there is no respect of persons. That's a huge line right there, you guys. And we're going to get to it in a minute. So first, Paul commends them and saying, whatever you do, do it heartily. You have a boss. He talks about having a boss who's a despot, who's a bad boss, who's mean. He says, Christians, do your job. Because you're serving the Lord. You do it heartily for him, not for this guy. Right? So you can have a bad boss. It doesn't give you the liberty to be a bad employee. This is, this is the faith getting out into the community and, and having people say there's something about the Christians that's good, that, that we like what they're doing because, I, you know, we have some really bad employer and he's like, I'm a terrible uh, guy, man. I'm so mean to these people. And yet these Christians, they work. What are you doing? You're giving the world an example of Christ in you. And that shines a light into the world. And that makes the world a better place as a Christ. Salt and light into this world. If you did the opposite and you were a bad employee and the slave taskmaster knew you were a bad employee, he'd say, these Christians are lousy. They're not worth it. And that happens today, especially. Some Christians are some of the worst employees you can have because they've, they've switched this. But Paul is directly claiming that doing it because you serve the Lord Jesus Christ in everything you do. Pretty, some, some pretty straightforward words there, that whatever we do, do it heartily unto the Lord. Many Christians, myself included, are so dedicated to God, we think we don't have to give respect to men. And that's not what Paul is suggesting. So if you're picking weeds for a neighbor, or you're doing the job that you get paid for, or whatever it is, it's not the picking of the weeds. It's not the job you're being paid for. It's the Lord. And that's the idea that the Christians are to have, serving Him, our God and our King. And the attitude really brings home the fact that we are His. That, I mean, we can talk theoretically about it and say, well, you know, we're kind of His. And yeah, He's up there, but He doesn't care. But Paul is, make, is making it clear, if you're a Christian, you are His. He's the King. You are his servant. You're his subject in his kingdom. And you do everything for him. And I consider that a reality and something that is actual in my life. And, and, and I think it's important because uh, we, this life will end. And we will see if it's actual or not. The scripture is suggesting it's actual. All right. So always in his employ, always representing him, and that fact can be sobering, but you want the sobering line, read the next one, verse 25, but, and this is to believers at Coloss, he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he has done. There is no respect of persons. 
What? What do you mean we'll receive for the wrong that we have done? What about I've been saved by grace through faith? Absolutely. You've been saved by grace through faith. You believe on Jesus, you're saved. You're saved to the kingdom. It's okay. Done. Saved. But he who does wrong will receive for the wrong which he or she has done, and there's no respect of persons. Now, he's writing this to Christians in Coloss, and he's telling them there's no respect of persons. Know what that says to me? Christians aren't exempt from receiving for the wrong that we have done. I'm talking about as Christians. I'm not talking about for sin. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about things like pretending to be a good employee and when the boss is back to stern is not. I'm talking about going against all the things we read about. If you are someone who does that, you will receive. All right. So how does that work? If we've been saved by faith through grace, how are we going to receive for the wrong that we have done because God's not a respecter of persons. And that line, not a respecter of persons, is important. What it says is, God does not look at a human being and say, I respect you so much. He doesn't care if you are, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos. He doesn't care if you're a bum on the street. He does not care about your person when it comes to assessing you. He's not a respecter of persons. He doesn't look at your wealth. He doesn't look at what you've accomplished. He looks at one thing, the heart. Boom, boom, boom. That's what God looks at. It's all through scripture. And so, and he's not respecting you. He's just assessing you by the heart. Respecting you would be, yeah, I know you had a pretty good heart, but God, you were a great singer. Come on in. No respect from God. That's what scripture is clear on. So he says, he who does wrong will receive for the wrong that he has done. There's no respect of persons, believers, non-believers. There's no respect of persons. So how does that happen if we've been saved by grace through faith? From what I can tell, and you don't have to agree with this, but from what I can tell from all of the New Testament put together is that the gains and loss for the things that we do, Christian and not, are meted out through your resurrection. It's meted out there. The resurrection, the body that you're given when you die, is given to you by God, according to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. God decides of his own will I'm going to give them this resurrected body. Whatever it means, I have no idea. Some suggest that the reception for the wrong that people do is they go to hell. Eternal hell. And we have talked about how that has been done away with in the age of fulfillment. And God and Christ are all in all. But still there's going to be an assessment where people are going to receive for what they've done. Everybody. And some suggest that you're beat with stripes because Jesus talks about that relative to some parables. Some think that the reward you're going to get when you die or the punishment is going to be meted out through the kind of mansion you get. Some people are going to have huge Park City mansions and some people are going to have little huts in the mud. And they think that that's how you're going to be rewarded. 
all these things, none of the, the reason they'd say that is because Jesus said, in my father's house, there are many mansions. And they think, I don't know how that works inside a house or mansions, but that's what he said. So they think we're going to have mansions and we're going to die and we're going to move into these different types of mansions based on what we did. And then some suggest that you are going to uh, inherit a kingdom and continue to have children there. That that will be your reward. If you've done everything right and did nothing wrong, you'll die and you're going to get, you know, your own kingdom and your own place and own world and you're going to have more of your own children. They say that's the reward. You can believe what you want. It's up to you. It's between you and God. I just go by what the scripture says, assess it and see what it says. And what it says is that we all receive a spiritual body and God gives it. He grants it to everybody, believer and not, get a resurrected body. And they receive that and before entering into the realm of the heavens. And that, uh, I think, is going to be when they receive for the good and or the bad they've done. And perhaps it is in and through our resurrected bodies that each individual is gifted or limited in afterlife things. Maybe in the resurrected body, some, like in Jesus' case, was a perfectly resurrected body. He had the ability to sit at the right hand of his father. And maybe it's proximity to God that the resurrected body gives to you. That, that the, the better it is, the closer you are to God. And the worse it is, the further uh, you are away. We don't know. But we know, do know that in Hebrews, they talked about resurrected bodies that the women in the Old Testament sought for a better resurrection, is how Paul puts it. A better resurrection. So there has to be a difference in resurrections. And there has to be a difference in, in what you receive of God after this life for the way you lived it. And that's what I think he's, he's saying here. What's remarkable is Paul is writing to believers here and he reminds them that even if they do wrong, God is not a respecter of persons, any persons apparently, including those who are in the faith. So I, I suggest that's true. And it's a sobering in and of itself, but the real sobering thing is Paul tells us that if they do wrong, they will receive for the wrong that, they're, that they have done because he's not a respecter of your person. And this affirms the starkness of Romans 2.11, which says, for there is no respect of persons with God, period. I know how humans think I'm one of you and I think the same way. He'll like me. <laughs> he's going to really, you know, think I'm funny or that I did good in my life or, you know, I did. He'll take, he'll see me that way. He's really that way. But remember in the Old Testament that God is described as a consuming fire, a consuming fire. That's why on the uh, uh, Mount Sinai, when Moses had an interaction with God, he was like, I'm not getting near that. He consumes he is a fire and, you know, we can personify him and put him in the body of an old man with a beard. You can take God and you can make him all those human things. Jesus says, God is not a man. Scripture says, God is not a man. Scripture says, God is not, God is not, uh, God is spirit. You worship him in spirit and scripture says, God is a consuming fire. 
And there is terror in most people in the Old Testament when they had an interaction with God. It was sheer terror. So, but he's a loving God. This God is love, right? So I just think that, that we misappropriate our feelings for each other, which are often wrong, and we put them on God and think he's just going to like me for who I am. And uh, that's not the case. He's not a respecter of anybody. Um, he's a receiver of those who receive his son in faith. And he's a bequeather of gifts to those who walk by faith and who choose to love. Faith and love, that's it. Forget about religion. Faith and love. So he gives to those who have faith and who love. But we can't impress him with our persons. It's not going to happen from what I can see. So at this point, we come to the chap- chapter 4, which is really a continuation of chapter 3 and the first uh six verses. So I want to cover those with you really quickly. He goes on, he says, masters. So he said, servants, follow your masters, given to your servants, which is just and equal, knowing that you have a master in heaven. So he's talked about slaves. Now he's talking to their masters. If you're a believer, masters, you better be treating your slaves or your servants right, just and equal. He says, so we've seen he's covering the gamut of how these Christians are to be with each other, right? He says, the reason for this is because you have a master in heaven. Again, taking it from the master over his slaves and saying master has a master in heaven. So therefore he should be treating slaves correctly. Continue in prayer and watching the same with thanksgiving with all praying for also for us that God would open the door door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds that I might make make it manifest as I ought to speak walk in wisdom toward them that are without redeeming the time let your speech always be with grace seasoned with salt that you may know how every man ought to give an answer those are going to be the last core passages we cover and then we're going to wrap up the chapter uh, for quickly because it's just benedictions. It's just saying goodbye to everybody in the letter, which can be boring stuff. Uh, So let's just cover these first six verses, and then we'll wrap up Colossians, and we end that book, and we start 1 Thessalonians next week. So go back to verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, where Paul continues now, and he's talking about the masters uh, over servants. And I think this verse should have been included in chapter 3, just by the way, my opinion. But whatever, verse one, master is given to your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you shall have a ma- that you have a master in heaven. If you're an employer, be fair. If you're an employer, pay rightly, treat justly, equitably with your uh, servants. If we lived in a day of slavery, it would be if you're a Christian and you have slaves. This is really interesting. If you're a Christian and you have slaves, treat them fairly. Paul is probably referring to slaves here and taking that very normal situation of slavery in hand. This was a very normal situation to have slaves. Paul is trying to deal with the reality of that in the presence of those who are of faith. He's trying to address them and saying, hey, if, you're a, if you have slaves, let me tell you how to be as a slaveholder. 
And if you're a slave, let me tell you how to be as a slave. And uh, his argument is that as Christians, these masters have a master over them. And if Christ is your master, master of slaves, then you, and he treats you fairly, and he treats you equitably, you do the same thing with the slaves that are under you and who you own. It really, really, really troubles people in this world today that in early Christianity, and in fact, going back through slavery in America, Christians own slaves. It's a reality. And you can't get away from that. And we don't understand it completely because it's not part of our life. And, but what many people say is, if they were real Christians, slavery wouldn't have existed in their lives. That's what they say. No, that, 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 this is bad. You know, the minute that somebody received Christ in Paul's day, Paul's advice to them should have been, emancipate your slaves, let them go. And, and, but he doesn't, does he? He says, in fact, slaves treat your master, do, do well by your masters and masters do well by your slaves. Now, why do I point this out? It proves to me, it proves to me that Christianity is not about rectifying this world. Christianity is not about perfecting the way this world works. It never has been. Christianity is about dealing with the way the world works through the heart of the individual Christians. And when you take Christianity and you make it political and you take Christianity and you try to end slavery, if Paul had tried to do that in that age, it would have turned into something very different than what Christianity is. And that's the good news. That is that Jesus came, he lived, he died, he resurrected, and he paid for your sin. Look to him and live. That's the good news. It is not for Christians to fix Christianity, abortion, homosexuality. It is not there for us to fix this world. It is there for us in those uh, situations to love and to do what a Christian should do in, in those situations. And this is a perfect uh, uh, point for it. We aren't here to fix the world. We are here to be Christ to our neighbors who are in slavery. We are here to be Christ to the people that are in slavery to us. Or if we're slaves, we're here to be Christ to our masters. And religion has lost that. Religion wants to rectify the world of all evils. That is not what it's ever been about, ever. And it starts all the way back here with Paul. But Paul makes it clear in his writings that in Christ, there's not one bit of difference between a white person and a black person, a male, a female, a slaveholder or a slave uh, or a servant, a Jew or a Gentile, no difference at all. When was this established? All the way back in Acts, all the way back in the New Testament, this was established in Christ Jesus. Women, you are the same in Christ as a man. Blacks, browns, yellows, reds, you're the same in Christ as a white, yellow, brown, or red. Slaves, the same in Christ as a master. Jews, the same in Christ as a Gentile. Now, this is what religion's done. They've come along and they said, no, we need to exclude black people from this. No, we need to come along. We need to do this with women. We don't let them, we don't let them do this. 
and they have taken the good news and they have diced it up and they've turned it into religious applications. But in scripture, do you know what Acts 17, 26 says? It says, God took one blood and made them all nations. Did you know that? One blood, all nations. And you know what it says in 1 Timothy 6, 2 and Philemon 1, 16? Everybody of those bloods are redeemed by the same Savior. We are all one blood redeemed by the same Savior. And guess what that does? It makes all of us brothers and sisters. All the way back in Jesus' day. We are all brothers and sisters. And when you have the Christian ethic and perspective come into this world, you fix things. When it's anything else, you don't fix them. You just, you just, you just make them more problematic. Paul is telling us right here, everybody is a brother and sister. If you're a master and you have slaves, I'm not going to address slavery. I'm just going to say, masters, treat your slaves equitably and fairly. And slaves, work hard for your masters. And wives, do this with your husbands. And husbands, do this with your wives. And fathers, do this with your children. And children, do this with your husbands. It's a perfect system for governing the world. But it doesn't work. Because we want to break it up and make new rules and do new things for ourselves. Paul says, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. You know what that means. I don't need to explain it. And then at verse 3, Paul does what he often does in the letters he sends. He starts off by talking about himself and, and things about the church. He gives a whole body of doctrine. And then he ends his letters to these churches in that day with specific things about himself, his life, and the people he's been around. And that's the, kind of the boring part at the end of these epistles. And that's why I'm going to go through it quickly and wrap it up. With all, with everything, praying also for us. Paul brings himself back into the letter now. That God would open to us a door of utterance and speak the mystery of Christ, of which I am also in bonds. In other words, please pray for us here in Rome. Paul's writing from prison in Rome. You guys in Coloss, please pray for us. We're still in prison. That God would open up the door of utterance. That means that God would open it up so that we can continue to speak the truth to the people here. To speak the mystery of the gospel, as he says in Ephesians 6.19. He says, for which I am also in bonds, meaning I'm in prison because of the gospel. I've been in prison for a long time under Roman government. I'm writing you this letter. I'm in chains, but I'm writing it to you because I want you to pray for us so, so we can be freed from these bonds and speak the truth. Then at verse four, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Simple, that I might pr preach the gospel out as I should. Please pray for us. Verse five. Walking in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. An important addition here. I'm going to cover it real quick. Walking in wisdom towards those who are not of the faith. Who don't profess Christ as their Lord and Savior. He adds, redeeming the time. So, and you know what that means? It means that to take the opportunities in front of you and redeem them, fix them, and make them better. And, and, and so we talked about this in our study in Ephesians 5, but in the life of a Christian, there's a notion that once saved, once you come to know Jesus in your heart, you start redeeming the time for your past life without Christ. So I was partying and doing this and doing that and whatever else before I knew Christ. 
once I come to know Christ, I start making up for the things I did badly before. Redeeming the time is what he's talking about. Um, and with wisdom toward those who are outside of the faith. Wisdom is knowledge applied. So you don't, you don't um, just become this loudspeaker of Jesus, which people do out on the streets. You use wisdom. You, not, you take your knowledge of him and you apply it to the situation and the person at hand. Redeeming the time. And he adds to this, let your speech always be with grace. Seasoned with salt. That you may know how, to, how you ought to answer every person. I love that passage. It's really an important one. Even though it's included in the benediction of the epistle. Let your speech, let your conversation always be with grace to those who are without, to those who are not believers. All right. I haven't always lived that way, but he's telling us here in the previous verse, he said, our conduct should be wise and prudent. Now he says, let your conversations be with grace. That means goodness. It means undeserved goodness, right? You get God's grace. You're a sinner and God still blesses you. That's called grace. You're getting something you don't deserve. So he says, let your conversation be also graceful, filled with kindness, generosity, showing that God loves and is operating in you and, and helping you. And Paul adds, seasoned with salt. Now, it's interesting to the Greeks, salt in conversation meant wit. I got a friend right sitting over here. He's very witty. His conversations are seasoned with salt. That's how the Greeks would see that. And that means that you add seasoning to your conversations with people who are outside of the faith. And I think it might be, you know, don't be a dullard. I think, I think Paul's just saying, don't be some, Jesus has saved me. I am a Christian, you know, believe and live. No, he's saying season your conversation with salt. And the Greeks meant with wit, witticisms, fun, joy. Laughter, uh, season with salt, making each conversation like a plate of food that's been properly seasoned versus a plate of food that's bland. There's nothing worse than you get served a plate of food and it's lacking any seasoning. He's saying, add that to your conversation with the world and the world will start to see what Christ does in your life. And that's kind of the point of all these things is, you know, you can have your faith and you can be saved but what does it mean when you are evidencing Christ to others who don't know him? It should mean love. It should mean conversation seasoned with salt. It should mean goodness, non-bias. Non Everybody's equal, right? That every man ought to know the answer he ought to give. And, uh, and we could think that he is saying that this is talking about apologetics. And I know a lot of people would say this means in apologetics and argumentation, but I don't think so. I think Paul is saying, let the Holy Spirit move you and give you the right time and the right place to share the right information. Season it with grace and salt. Don't just be one of these people who blabs out uh, doctrinal gems constantly to people who don't know how to receive it, right? Use your mind, use your wisdom, your knowledge applied with grace, season with salt, and then uh, so that you can give every person an answer for the hope that is within you. And we reach the closing remarks. And let me read them to you. And we'll go through quick. It's a lot of historical stuff. 
All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is the beloved brother and a faithful minister of the fellow servant of the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that you might know your estate and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they shall make known of you the things which shall be done. So in this exact benediction is found in Ephesians chapter 6. We have covered that. Paul is telling the believers at Coloss, Tychicus and Onesimus, these guys are faithful brothers and faithful servants. They'll inform you of everything that was going on in Rome. And Paul had confidence in them. Verse 8, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose that they might know your estate and comfort your hearts. That's why we sent them. Verse 9, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, and they shall make known to you all things which are done here. Onesimus, we're going to learn about in Philemon. He was a slave that became a Christian. We're going to learn about Onesimus when we study Philemon. But here Paul is saying, receive Onesimus, who's one of you, meaning he probably came from Coloss, is what he's saying. Verse uh, 10 through 15, Paul mentions seven proper noun names, and I'm going to cover them quickly. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son of Barnabas, touching whom you receive commandments. If he come to you, receive him. And Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision. These only are my fellow workers of the kingdom of God, which have comfort unto me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. For I bear him record that he has a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, and Damas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphos, which is in the church at his house. So that's how he almost wraps it up. Really quickly, um, these characters, we don't know that much about all of them. Aristarchus is from Thessalonica. Marcus is Barnabas's sister's son. Marcus, he's known as John Mark. He caused a division between Paul and Barnabas in Acts to where Paul and Barnabas split ways. It was because John wasn't really that sold out to doing things. It appears now that they've been reconciled. And so Paul here in this letter is recommending him. And Jesus, which is called Justice, and he says these guys are all of the circumcision, meaning they all have been former Jews that have been converted. He adds, I bear him record, and he has a great zeal for you. Luke, verse 14, the beloved physician whom we know. And uh, so Luke, of course, is the writer of the Gospel of Luke. Luke was, is called the physician here. means he was uh, someone who worked in medical arts. And Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts. And so Luke was with him in traveling. And, of course, Demas greet you. Now, it's interesting. Demas is mentioned in two places, Philemon 1.24 and 2 Timothy. And Demas, here he's recommended by Paul. But when you get to uh, 2 Timothy, he denounces Demas. There's a little historical fact. Here he recommends Demas. And in 2 Timothy, he says, he has loved the present world and he's left me. And he, uh, he tells uh, in 2 Timothy that this is his greatest trial in his ministry when Demas turned and left him. So we have one letter here where he is appropriating Demas as a good fellow servant. And when we study Thess- uh, the letter to Thessalonica beginning next week, and then when we read 2 Timothy, 
we find that Demas has fallen from the faith. He's, excuse me, turned to the things of the world. Finally, salute the brethren which are at Laodicea and Nymphos uh, and the church which is in his house. And we know that the believers then met in open public places or in houses. They didn't have brick and mortar buildings that they met in. And uh, we don't know anything more of that person, Nymphos. And then the last three verses of Colossians. And when this epistle is read among you, cause it that it be also read to the church of the Laodiceans. And also likewise, read the epistle from Laodicea. So, and say unto Archippus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, and thou shalt fulfill it. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul, remember my bonds, grace be unto you, amen, written from Rome to Colossians by Tychicus and Onesimus. So, when he says, take this letter and read it among you and cause it to be read among the church at Laodicea, what he's saying is, when I write these letters to you guys, I want you to read it to each other and then send it to the other churches in Laodicea and other churches out in Asia Minor and read what I wrote. And then you read what I wrote to them, showing that these letters were circular. And this is what helped give the apostolic letters meaning as the believers were reading them in that day. And then Paul adds, um, and say unto Archippus, take heed to the ministry that thou receive the Lord and fulfill it. This could have been a way of saying, beware. It could have been a, a reprimand. We don't know. We can't tell by the words. So you just have to decide in the last verse for Colossians, the salutation by my hand of me, Paul. Now, just to let you know, at verse 18, it seems, Paul does this in 1 Corinthians and 2 Thessalonians. Paul takes over writing before he's dictating to Tychicus and Onesimus the letter he's having sent to uh, Colossians. Here, he seems to take his own pen and he adds the salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds, grace be unto you, amen. And then it's written at the end, written from uh, Rome to Colossians by Tychicus and Onesimus. So in three places in the letters Paul sends, he seems to say, this is my handwriting. I endorse this letter. And it was a way of validating the epistles that were going out to the believers in that day. Grace be unto you. May you still possess the uh, uh, blessing of God. Amen is not in most of the manuscripts that we find um, and have found of the Bible. Amen was added later to that by the text. And then that salutation thing at the end to the Colossians, written from Rome by Tychicus and Onesimus, um, it's missing from the Latin Vulgate. It seems to have been a little addition. Someone is saying, I'm going to add this somewhere. And so we don't have it in our manuscripts. And that wraps up Colossians. And we'll hit First Thessalonians next week. Questions, comments, insights, please. Criticisms. A lot of wrap-up historical junk at the end. Sorry. So who are these handsome three kids we've got sitting here? They're not related to you. There's no way. Beautiful family. What? And the wife back there. Welcome. It's Father's Day, right? Got it. <laughs> Glad you guys came, man. So, uh, can you tell me their names? Introduce us to your father. Paxton. Paxton Parker Paisley. 
That's a beautiful, you've done well, Mom. Thanks for showing up. You're always welcome. We don't, all, we don't always get this heavy, but we had to wrap it up with the... Oh, wait, we need to say your name and say it in the microphone for our audience at home. Just first name. Just first name. It's on. Oh, boy. So, um, I'm a Mormon, and um, I know my kids are dying that I'm on, that I'm talking, but um, as you are talking, and Justin, Justin and I have had a lot of conversations um, since he's been coming here, and and it's been hard to kind of have a dialect and how to how to have a, a comfortable conversation um, on how to kind of go um, how to trudge through these waters because in all honesty from the bottom of my heart I just want him to be happy I really do um, and I think he's still trying to trust that and and I think he'd agree with that um, but um, when I and he and he will say to me just because you're a Mormon you're not a Christian and so hearing the things that you are saying today um, kind of I, I was understanding that a little bit more of why he's saying that um, but I can say for a surety in my heart that I know I am a Christian not because I am a Mormon, but because I know my faith in, this, in the Savior, Jesus Christ. I do believe in my faith and, and what I believe in, and I don't believe that I'm wrong necessarily. I don't love a lot of the things that the culture has turned into and my family will never turn into that for sure i want to be different and i'm in fact paxton my oldest is currently waiting for mission call his his um, papers are actually in right now and so um that being said i just i just want to make sure like i'm so grateful that justin has somewhere that he can be himself and feel comfortable and happy and I and I want to come more with him and and learn more and and I want him to know that I and and Sean and I have had multiple conversations and and I want my kids to understand this is important to their dad and and I really do I I I I really want to know how to bridge the gap if that makes sense because i i think there is a lot of ways that we can meld together without having to separate we had our 20 year anniversary yesterday and i don't want it i don't want it to end i want to keep flourishing but i'm afraid if we can't bridge that gap and bring these two worlds together there won't does that make sense Total and so sense. listening to you today and hearing i mean i'm not a scriptorian i i grew up in the mormon church and i couldn't read you scripture for the life of me it's just something that's in my heart and 
So, um, is I don't know if I'm making sense, but you're making sense. So, for what you what you read today was heartfelt to me, and I loved what you had to say, Sean. And I, and I, I know that what you feel and what you have to say is is so pure and true. And I so appreciate the love that you have shown Justin and the truth that you have brought to him and and to others in the world. And I and I think that, you know, just with what's going on in the world right now, that's just just love and acceptance and just realizing that there's so much good and there's truths and, and greatness everywhere. And we just need to respect that. And so anyway, I hope that makes sense. And I just, I'm just, I I just really hope that I, it's just, I'm just really grateful that he has this place to be happy in and I just want him to be happy. So thank you you you. so much. Uh, I want to say something to add to that if I can. Is there another comment? Uh, One, there's a lot of people in here who are still in the same sort of position you've been or been there. And uh, you stay Mormon your entire life. We love you as you are and, and your ch- children. So that's nothing, okay? You're always welcome here. The second thing I want to say is it's admirable that on Father's Day, you guys chose to come here. Even with Paxton getting ready to go on the mission, thanks for stepping up and not uh, you know, uh, screaming at me or something or, or yelling at your dad. But you're going to go on the mission. That's, that's great. I love my LDS mission. And... Uh, we're just glad that a family's sticking together. And the third thing is never let this religion or that religion break you guys up in any way. Never. Because God would not like that. I know. I'm sure of that one. I usually don't speak for him, but I think that's true. You have too much of a beautiful thing going on between all uh, five of you. Is that how many there are? Yeah. So keep going. We're proud of you. And if there's other people in this audience to give insight... You're always uh, welcome. Anybody else? Anything to say? All right, Dan. This is the man who speaks with salt. (laughs) His wife just said scary. Well, so I just wanted to... uh, This is Dan. Um, We're not Mormon, but we... uh, You know, Lori comes here because I love it here because Sean, uh, Sean speaks the things that I need to hear. And um, Lori is just kind of adapted to that. And she loves Sean too, but so, I mean, we have kind of the same thing going. It's not a more, it's not just a Mormon Christian thing. It's a religion church relationship with Jesus thing too. So I'm thankful for her and that she puts up with my craziness here. Well, anyway, I did have a question. Uh, um, At the end there, he says, See, make sure you pass this letter around. Yeah. Uh, and to, and he specifically says to the Laodiceans, read it to those guys. Yeah. And then he says, and you also read out the one for Laodicea. You would catch yeah, that, of would, course yeah. I would. So uh, I just wonder if there's any relationship between, if there's an epistle out there that just didn't get handed down to us, or if that epistle might be similar to the what he has, what he tells John to write to Laodicea in Revelation. Yeah. There's a paragraph there. Yeah. Anyway. And, and, and the answer to that is we don't know. It could be a lost epistle. Okay. It could be a duplicate epistle. That, that's why we don't have it now. 
or it could be uh, one that is uh, named something else in our scripture. Uh, those are the three uh, views on that, but good catch. Danny Boy. This is Danny. <clears throat> I appreciate your comments so much. I love the fact that you're um, open-minded and willing to support your, your husband and, and the kids as well. I'm really impressed with that. Uh, we, we have to remember, I mean, I was a member for 60 years, been on full-time mission. It was one of the best experiences of my life. Um, taught mission prep for two different stakes. So I, you know, I learned the gospel of Mormonism inside and out as much as I could to, to serve. And it was all good because it, it led me one step closer to my relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what it's all about. Each one of us in this room are on our own separate journeys and we can't uh, dictate and, uh, and control other people's journeys. We can influence them, we can love them, we can encourage them, but we really have to be uh, careful not to offend and we need to love. And that's the most important thing that we learn here as we come to, to campus is, is that God wants us to love other people, to love one another. And I talk to a lot of people uh, on his hotline who call in and ask, These are this situation where one spouse or one child or one parent ha has uh, left the Mormon faith or a Catholic faith or whatever. And now how do we, how do we navigate this uh, how do, through this journey? How do we deal with this? And it all comes down to being kind, being understanding and compassionate and loving and accepting and maybe being open-minded yourself, whoever, I'm not talking to you specifically, but we all need to be open-minded to truth because truth is the most important thing. And we think we know truth because of the information, the limited information that we have, but when it really comes down to it, we're all lacking. And that's why the scriptures and teaching from the word of God and asking for the Holy Spirit to direct, our, to direct us really helps us to come to the truth. And, um, and that's really important. So going on a mission, <clears throat> I learned to deal with people, to interact, to talk about Mormonism, the, you know, share the Book of Mormon, a lot of things that I felt important in my life at that time, which I'm, I don't regret at all. But now that I've added on to that, the true knowledge of the Word of God and, and how all this works, you know, I see that, I put that in its place now and, um, and I build upon it. So sometimes we have to go through things and do things in order for us to get closer to God because he's always constantly drawing us. I just wanted to quickly end by, by reading this verse in, jo in John chapter six, verse 44. No one can come to me, this is Christ talking, unless the Father who sent me draws him or her. And so he's constantly, our Father is constantly drawing us. He's constantly wooing us, inviting us to get closer and closer to his Son, Jesus Christ, who in Christian theology is not a spirit brother, but our God as it teaches in the, in, the, in the scriptures that he's God. And so I just encourage everybody to, you know, um, 
continue to support each other in their own journeys and to love one another. And, and uh, that's why we're all here. We're all humble. We're all trying to to grow spiritually. And so, thank you, Danny. Brooke, thank you for your insights. Paxton, I have one question for you. Where do you want to go? Australia. Australia? That's where I wanted to go. That's where Mike went. Yeah, he still has stuff from his mission. And you lived on Paxton? Wow. Oh. Australia. All right, let's hope you do it. Get, get your wish on that. And hope you don't get sent to Riverside, California. <laughs> yeah, well, whatever. You'll love it either way. All right, should we pray? Let's get out of here. Uh, Lord, we uh, thank you for, uh, for life, and we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for loving us so much. You gave us uh, your only begotten, your only human son, Jesus Christ, who lived like we couldn't and died like we wouldn't, and uh, so we can live uh, through you. And we just pray your uh, blessings upon us as we exit here, that we'll leave religion behind, and we will take your spirit of love and faith out to our neighbors, our family, our friends, our enemies, and that that love will abide. And we, we pray uh, especially for Grant, uh, who's in the hospital, and he wants to give up on life. And I met him yesterday, and he's struggling, so we pray you'll help him and Myrna as he's going through some real trials with his uh, body and uh, help him to be sustained and supported by you. We pray for Michael in, uh, in, the, in London, uh, who is um, struggling with his family, his disabled son, and difficulty there. And we pray for those who have written in that I can't remember right now, and you'll help them and bless them and encourage them in this time of lockup, in this time of uh, upheaval in this world. And then we pray uh, here for our family that's visiting here, that uh, Justin has brought his beautiful wife, Brooke, and they brought their children, and they're here. And we just pray your blessings upon them as, uh, as they continue to seek you and uh, in spirit and truth, and you'll bless them abundantly and protect them and help them continue on with those things that are, are beneficial. We pray your blessing upon Paxton as he goes to his mission, wherever it might be and that that spirit of Christ will emanate out of him as he goes door to door or whatever work he's doing. And you'll bless him and protect him and help him share the message of Jesus Christ with the world and that that will be the uh, focus of his mission and ministry. And we just pray for him and his righteous desires and that of his brother and that of his sister. We love you, Lord. We need you. We worship you and seek you. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, have a good day.